I want to just share with us this morning um, about um, the Christmas journey. We, we talk about this, uh, this story, and it's going to be a little bit different twist on um, you know, the Christmas story today. Uh, I, I want us to focus on the journey and where Jesus came from. The Bible says that Jesus came from three places. He came from Nazareth, came from Bethlehem, and came from Egypt. And I took the uh, Liberty little Christmas bonus for you this morning, filling in the blank for you. Um, but I want to, uh, let's just pick up in uh, Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, it says, um, by the way, the Christmas story is found in uh, Luke chapter 1 and 2 and Matthew 1 and 2. We'll be looking at both of those this morning and then also a scripture out of uh, Micah. But it says, in the days of Caesar Augustus, or in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David. Because he belonged to the house and the line of David, he went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloth and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, um, you know, history tells us a lot about Caesar Augustus, that he was a very brilliant uh, leader, uh, world leader even today in, in uh, politics and history. He is still noted as a great uh, a political leader. He's also known for his uh, incredible financial wit, uh, and it was because of this taxation uh, that uh, Mary and Joseph uh, ended up going to Bethlehem. Now, I want you to think about it for a moment. Uh, they lived in Nazareth. It was about 70 or 80 miles down to Bethlehem from where they lived, and they had not planned on having their child in Bethlehem. Uh, they planned on having their baby in Nazareth. It's where they lived. Um, you know, they uh, had they planned on having the baby in Bethlehem, they would have taken off probably several months earlier. Uh, she, by this time, is probably uh, within one or two weeks of delivering her baby. And um, you know how it is. I mean, we read about Elizabeth uh, when she's giving birth to John the Baptist, how Mary had gone down and helped her prep and get the house ready, and I'm sure that's what was happening at Mary and Joseph's house. They were getting the house ready. They had the room ready for the baby. The house is ready. You have those uh, family members that come in and want to uh, help you during those first couple of weeks of taking care of the baby, and I'm sure that that's what they were doing, but all of a sudden, a notice shows up, a letter in the mail, or a notice comes that um, Caesar Augustus has issued a decree and immediately you need to go and register. And so uh, they are on their way. Now what this tells us is that God is absolutely in charge. Uh, when we read, we read and we'll read in just a moment about uh, how the prophecy about uh, the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Uh, and it was written some 700 years prior to Jesus being born. But when we think about it, that God is absolutely in charge. He uses an ungodly pagan king to 
uh, file a decree that taxes have to be paid so that this baby would be born in Bethlehem, thus fulfilling the prophecy of Micah. Um, now think about it, just the detail of that. I mean, in every detail of your life and my life, you know, there's not anything that goes on in our life that God doesn't know about or that he's not concerned about or that he doesn't have full authority uh, and power over. Uh, and so God uses this, uh, this pagan king to uh, issue a decree that gets uh, Mary and Joseph down to Bethlehem uh, so the baby can be born there. We pick up again um, in, in Bethlehem. Um, he came from Bethlehem. He came from Nazareth. He also, uh, the scripture shows that he came from Bethlehem. Now listen to this. But you, Bethlehem, Epartha, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient time. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor gives birth and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be their peace. Micah 5.2. It says, But you, Bethlehem, though you were small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who is to be the ruler over Israel. Uh, interesting to note, the word Bethlehem comes from two uh, Hebrew words, Beth meaning house, and uh, Lehem meaning bread means house of bread. Bethlehem means house of bread. We probably wouldn't take much note of that until we get to John chapter 6. And in John chapter 6, you'll remember it's a story about Jesus is being there. And I never really put all of this together until I started, you know, looking at this uh, this week. Uh, but you'll remember in John chapter 6, it's one of the occasions where uh, Jesus is with the multitudes and thousands of people need to be fed and they got the, the boy with a few uh, fish and a few loaves of bread. And Jesus uh, does this incredible miracle feeding the thousands of people with, uh, with fish and bread. And, um, and he goes on after the first part of that chapter. And in the balance of John chapter 6, starting at about verse 33, he starts talking about bread. Uh, he says in verse 33... Uh, the true bread that comes from heaven, speaking about himself. I am the true bread that comes from heaven. Um, in verse 34, he says that uh, this is the bread of God. In verse 35, he says that I am the bread of life. Uh, in verse 41, he says, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And then in verse 40, 47, he says, I am the bread of life. And we pick up in John chapter 6, verse 51, Again, Jesus saying, there's, you know, if you look at this, there's uh, 11 references in this chapter about Jesus being bread. He says, I am the living bread, that bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I give uh, for the life of the world. And so I don't think that it's any coincidence that, that the bread of life, the true bread of life, the bread of heaven comes from the house of bread. Uh, I think that uh, it's not a coincidence in God's economy 
Um, and Jesus is saying here that I am that bread, just much like he was saying to the woman at the well about the water, that he was that living water. He was the water that uh, if you uh, drank from, that you would never thirst again. He is that water that would satisfy you. And I think that he's saying the same thing in this sense, that, that he is that bread that satisfies that craving within us. Uh, the Bible tells us in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, that God has set eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from the beginning to the end. There is something within each one of us, there's something that, that wants to think about eternity, eternity or eternal life. And, uh, and so we begin, you know, we have these pursuits, so, you know, uh, looking for, trying to satisfy this hunger uh, and sometimes we try to satisfy it through the wrong things. Remember that old country western song, looking for love in all the wrong places. And, and I believe that the word is, is kind of similar to that in this instance, that uh, we try to satisfy this longing, this hunger that's within us through different things in life. We try to satisfy it through pleasures or through money or through drugs or alcohol or sex or, you know, if I could just get a new car or if I could get a new house. And every time we get one of those things, the hunger is still there. We're not satisfied. And the reason is that you cannot satisfy this eternal hunger in you with temporal things. This eternal hunger can only be satisfied with eternal things. And that's why Jesus says that he can satisfy this longing, this desire that we have within us. Are we there? We tracking? You guys with me? You know, I believe in life that each of us have this desire within each of us. We have, we have this internal desire to love and to be loved. Each of us. We want to be loved. Uh, we want to find meaning and purpose in life. And we want to be satisfied with, with who we are in life. Now, uh, you know, I, I mentioned to you that, you know, Bethlehem meant uh, house of bread. Just backing up a little bit, Nazareth means uh, to be separated or to, uh, to be separate. Jesus was, Jesus was separated from this world, and I believe that it's God's desire for you and I to be separated from the world just as Jesus was. Um, but God has planted in us not only eternity... But God has given us our flesh, the way that we're wired, the way that God has put us together. We have these longings. We have these cravings. We have an appetite that needs to be satisfied. We have it. Let me just, I, I think there are about eight appetites that the scripture kind of discloses. There may be more than that. But let me point out eight of the, the, the top eight. We have an appetite. We have a longing for God. We have an appetite to know God. Uh, we have an appetite for pleasure. We have a desire for pleasure. We have an appetite for food, this longing for certain kinds of food. We have a, an appetite for companionship. We have an appetite for sex. We have an appetite for authority and power. We have an appetite for work and success. We have an appetite for wisdom and knowledge. And God gives us these appetites. But these appetites are a lot like fire, that fire is good. I mean, it warms us, it cooks our food, we get light from it. But fire out of control is very destructive. I mean, living here in New Mexico over the last couple of years, we've seen what fires out of control can do. I mean, they're very destructive. It's the same as true 
with these appetites that we have. Out of control appetites, out of balance appetites are very destructive uh, for us. And so uh, while we can have this appetite for sex, we know that pornography and prostitution is wrong. It's wrong for us. It's wrong according to the Word of God. It, that would be out of control. Uh, while we have an appetite for authority and power, God tells us not to use that authority and power to lord it over or to be, um, to be hurtful or harmful to people that would work underneath you because Jesus says that we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. So uh, these appetites, even uh, these work appetites, you know, I, uh, you know, we have a desire to, to work and to succeed at our work. You know, I, I noticed that, uh, well, even in my own life, you know, when uh, you, you mess up at work, you do something wrong, you know, it's just kind of frustrating for you. Uh, even watching sports, you know, you watch a guy uh, watching football, we're in the football season, uh, you watch a guy that normally could catch a clutch pass on, you know, any day of the week, and he drops the pass, and what's he doing? He's out there pounding the, you know, pounding the dirt or, or the field or the turf, uh, or he fumbles and he just pounds the dirt. You know, he's just like frustrated with himself that he didn't do a good job. We're wired to succeed. We're wired to do good. And so when we don't do well, we get frustrated with ourselves. And so um, these appetites, all of these appetites are, are good. Like I said, they're good. They're God-given. Um, but, uh, you know, out of control appetites can be harmful to us, especially this one in sex. Num uh, notice uh, Proverbs chapter 2, verse 18. I think I have that in your notes. It's uh, talking about uh, this woman, the, uh, uh, the prostitute in Proverbs. It says, for her house leads down to death. It's talking about this type of sex that leads to death. And in her house, it leads down to death, her path to the spirits of the dead. None who go to her uh, or attain, or will attain the paths of life. None who go to her return to attain the paths of life. And so uh, I just want to encourage you today. These God-given uh, appetites that we have need to be in balance. And any time they're out of balance, any time that God gives us something that gets out of balance, we can use something that is meant for good and then turn it around and use it for sin. And so uh, the bread of life, this house of bread from Bethlehem, we see the bread of life that comes from Bethlehem is the only one that can truly satisfy, satisfy these deep longings that each of us have. And with balance in those. The third thing that we see about Jesus is that, well, just, just another thought occurred to me. I'm thinking about people that just have been, in, and we see through history, people that have been incredibly successful. And you would look at them, and I, I'm thinking of, um, you know, uh, actors and musicians and artists that we, we know over the last couple of years that have died from drug overdoses. Uh, I mean, we've seen it in, um, you know, just re in the last couple of years. Some memory or name will come to your mind. I don't even have to mention them. But you would think this person is on top of the world and has everything that a person could want. They've got the finances. They've got fame. They've got it all, notoriety, they're successful in the world, and yet 
many will say that they're not satisfied. And that dissatisfaction is what pushes them to drug overdoses or, uh, you know, uh, accidents, suicide, uh, you know, just because, as I said earlier, the temporal things cannot satisfy the eternal. God has set eternity in our hearts and in our lives, and we will never be able to satisfy eternity with those temporal things. And that's why Jesus said, I am the bread of heaven. I will satisfy this. Taste and see, the psalmist says, taste and see that the Lord is good, that this is good, that this bread from heaven will satisfy every need that you have. And finally, we see our third point here is that Jesus came from Egypt. Let's read the story from Matthew. It says, Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time that the star had appeared. And he sent them, the Magi, to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. And as soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. And after they heard the king, they went on their way. And the star that they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. And they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and incense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. And when they, when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt and stay there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up and took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord has said through the prophet, out of Egypt I've called my son. Uh, let me just, uh, just a little side note here, probably not real important. But if you read Luke's account of this story, it says that when they, Mary and Joseph took Jesus to the temple to present him, um, they presented him with, I think, the two uh, turtle doves. Um, and if you look, the scripture says there were two types of offering. If you were wealthy, you could present this offering. If you were not wealthy, uh, you could present the lesser offering. The two turtle doves is what they presented because they were not wealthy. Now, the Bible tells us that Joseph was a righteous man, that he was a godly man. I cannot imagine Joseph having in his possession the gold and the frankincense and the myrrh that the wise men presented him and present the cheap offering. That's why I feel that the wise men didn't show up until after. And then think about it. They, here they are. They live in Nazareth. They've just taken just a little vacation to go down to Bethlehem to... Um, you know, sign up uh, for the census. And while they're there, God says, go to Egypt. Well, how could they afford to do that? Well, now they can. The wise men show up with the treasures of gold and uh, frankincense and myrrh and to sustain them uh, during this time away from home. Just my thought, okay? Out of Egypt, I've called my son. I, this is really significant, I think, in the Christmas story and the Christmas journey because there is one word that is synonymous with Egypt, 
and that is slavery. It's slavery. I mean, you mention Egypt to a Jew, immediately their mind goes to, hey, we were there for 400 years as slaves in Egypt. And so when you mention Egypt to a Jew, they know exactly what you're talking about. So when the scripture says here, out of Egypt I've called my son, it should cause us to just like this quickening in, in our spirits. Because uh, I believe that the Bible talks about four different types of slavery. And I just want to just kind of break through them one at a time. The first type of slavery is bondage. I did a little research myself this morning and... Uh, uh, the definition of bondage is the condition of being controlled by something that limits freedom. The condition of being controlled by something that limits freedom. The Bible talks about how we can get into bondage. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 5, it says, I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity. Now mark that, mark that word. Underline it, circle it, we're going to come back to it. I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generations of those that hate me. Now, we, we see these three words that are used a lot, sin, transgression, and iniquity. Uh, in, Exodus, or in Isaiah chapter 53, it talks about sin, transgression, and iniquity. And I just want to break that down for you this morning because I think that if you understand this, you can understand just kind of a, a strategy of who we are and, and how the enemy works in our lives. Um, so when we talk about iniquity, we're talking about this condition that's being controlled by something that limits freedom. Iniquity uh, is how it's that, that part of your nature that, you know, how you're bent. Now, I, I, uh, you know, we read earlier about these uh, appetites that we have and how we try to uh, suppress those appetites through, um, you know, through drugs or alcohol or sex. You know, you might find one person that, uh, you know, perhaps when you, you came to the, before you came to the Lord, you struggled in a certain area. And you'll meet someone else that completely struggled in a totally different area. Maybe, you know, someone's uh, struggle was uh, sex and pornography. Um, and another person's struggle might have been uh, drugs or alcohol. Um, you know, you're just kind of, that's, it's how you're bent. Iniquity is how you're bent. It's what you're bent toward. It's like when, you know, when you begin to fall into sin, typically it's the same thing. It's the same area. If you're confessing the same sin over and over and over again, that's how you're bent. You're bent toward that. And so what he's talking about here, what the word's talking about here, is that uh, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third or the fourth generation. What that's saying is there may have been something in your past or in your grandfather's past or your grandmother's past or your great-grandmother's past or your great-grandfather's past um, that they did that you find yourself now doing. You know, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, I will never be like my mother, or I will never be like my father. And yet they turn out to be exactly that way. Even though they recognized there was a flaw there, there was something there that they didn't want or they didn't like and didn't want to be like, they end up being that way. It's because we are bent that way. It's the iniquity that's within us. 
And so uh, he says, I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. I'm visiting the iniquity upon the fathers, upon the children of the fathers, uh, upon the children into the third and fourth generation. Bondage is like, you know, it comes upon us suddenly. It's like taking us hostage. Captivity is another one of those uh, uh, um, uh, types of slavery that we see in the Scripture. And as I looked at the definition of captivity, uh, it states that the state of being a prisoner. A captivity is used, at least in the uh, translation that I was using, the NIV, there was 32 references to captivity and most of those dealt with the 70 years of captivity. The Jews were taken captive uh, by the Babylonians. It's that uh, captivity comes, it's like that willful choice that we make when we walk in transgression. Transgression is another one of those words. Iniquity is the way that we're bent. Transgression is when God draws a line in the sand and says, don't cross over this line and we deliberately say, God, I don't care what you say. I don't care what you say about adultery. I don't care what you say about fornication. I don't care what you say about drugs or alcohol. I am crossing the line. And that's transgression. Um, and when we, listen to this from Romans chapter 6, and then I'll, I'll talk about it a little bit more. Um, talking about captivity, it says, don't you know? That when you offer yourselves to someone to obey, to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one that you obey. Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. So Paul is saying that you, when you take those steps and, and you give yourself to sin, you become a slave to that. And when we willfully sin, what we're doing is, is we're building a fort. We're building a fortress for the enemy to live in. And we're giving the enemy uh, authority over our behavior, over our thought pattern, over our lifestyles. Uh, we're just giving him the authority in our life when we willfully sin. Uh, the next uh, form of slavery that we see here is sickness. Um, and we in the church today draw a real distinction between salvation and healing. Um, the Bible doesn't do that. The Bible says that the same blood that saves us is also the same blood that heals us. Let me share a couple of scriptures with you. Isaiah 53. Surely he has taken upon our or taken up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the pun punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, by his wounds we're healed. Now I know that many people will say, well, that's spiritually. That's talking about spiritual healing of your transgressions, spiritual healing of your, uh, your iniquities, and spiritual healing of uh, your sins. But by the time that we get to the New Testament, the scripture reads, well, you remember the story where Jesus uh, heals a man, and uh, I believe this is the account where uh, his friends uh, uh, bring this man that's paralyzed to Jesus and drop him down through the roof, uh, taking the tile off the roof and dropping him down because the crowd was so great they couldn't get in. And uh, Jesus says to him, 
son, your sins are forgiven. And, uh, and all of the religious leaders, I think everyone that was there, began to question in their minds and their heart, how can Jesus forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus says to them, we pick up in verse 4, why do you t- entertain evil thoughts in your heart? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? And then he says to them, I don't have that on our outline this morning, but that you may know that the Son of Man has the power to forgive sins. He tells the man, get up and take up your pallet and uh, walk. And then finally, we see in Luke chapter 13, this, uh, this kind of this connection between uh, healing sins and healing the physical healing. In Luke 13, the history of this is that this woman has been bent over. Uh, she's crippled in her back. She's been bent over for 13, or for 13 years. And Jesus asked the religious leaders, is it legal to heal this woman on the Sabbath day? Nobody would say anything. Uh, and then Jesus goes on. We pick up verse 11. This woman should not, or should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, now notice this, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 years. Notice this connection between the enemy and sickness. Whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, shouldn't she be set free on the Sabbath day uh, from what has bound her? And then we find another form of slavery in the last one. And as I'm sharing this, if our worship team would just come back and take your positions. You know, fear is another form of slavery. It's probably the most common command in the scripture. Uh, where we're commanded not to be afraid. I think over 365 times in some translations, uh, someone said it's a fear not for every day of the year. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So as we think about the Christmas journey and what Jesus did, coming from Nazareth, coming from Bethlehem, and then coming from Egypt or coming out of Egypt, I believe that it's very significant. Each one of those places has a very significant meaning behind it. And I want to just focus on this last one for just a moment this morning. You know, if you're going through a a time right now where um, you feel like you're in some type of bondage or some type of captivity Uh, that's going on in your life and you just simply cannot get free. I just want to encourage you, during our time of worship, our uh, prayer ministers, if you would please, if you would just take your positions and they will be along the north wall and up front here as well. This is, uh, you know, I know that some of you probably came this morning thinking that we were going to hear a nice little Christmas story about a little baby in a manger. But I want to tell you that this is the real meaning of Christmas. Jesus didn't just come so that, you know, we could celebrate a child in a manger. He came to satisfy those deep longings within each of our hearts and our lives. He came to deliver. He came to set the captive free. When we think about it, almost everything that Jesus did has to do with freedom. Those that were blind, he gave sight to. They were free from that blindness. Those that were crippled, uh, he gave uh, strength in their legs so they could walk again, so that they were free from their bondage uh, being crippled. For the lepers, for the dead, 
that he raised, uh, he came so that we could experience freedom. And if you're not experiencing that, you know, if you're just kind of going through the, the motions of religion, I, I really want to encourage you to, you know, to hook up with one of our prayer ministers this morning.